batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move off. Always thought I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 70s and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! And now your hosts, Jeremy and Jeff. One half teaspoon for fast, effective relief. It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy going solo today, and we've got a very exciting episode. We're going to talk about one of my favorite, if not my very favorite album of all time. We're going to talk about the classic 2112 that was released in the 1976, my favorite Rush album for sure, and like I said, possibly my favorite album of all time. I did want to share... One thing, I guess we could call this news. It's uh, just word about a new album that uh, I, I am not familiar with this guy, but I saw a thing pop up on my phone and checked him out. This guy is named James Durbin, and he has a new album out uh, under the title of Durbin, and the album is called The Beast Awakens. <laughs> and if you're a fan of 80s metal, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Dio. Let me just say, this is a fun album. Kind of corny, you know, all the trappings of the cliched heavy metal stuff. I mean, we've got songs called The Prince of Metal, Into the Flames, The Beast Awakens, Evil Eye, Necromancer, Riders on the Wind, Battle Cry, By the Horns, Rise to Valhalla. Okay, so you see the vibe here. Now, having said that, I really like this album. I like it. If you're a fan of Dio, if you're a fan of Maiden, if you're a fan of Judas Priest, I think you'd enjoy it. But yeah, a little cheesy in terms of the lyrical content. But let's be honest, that's what was kind of cool about that 80s metal. So again, the album is called The Beast Awakens. It's by Durbin. So just came out. Uh, so check it out. Let me know what you think. Also, just a reminder that uh, you can email us at classic guitar rock at mail.com we're also available on all the major platforms now we're on google we're on apple we're on spotify we're on iheart we're on anchor and just about any other uh, of the platforms you can check us out wherever you want on your way to work when you're at work at home wherever you listen to podcasts you should be able to find the classic guitar rock podcast there and we are also on patreon so you can become a patron for as little as three dollars a month our goal, of course, is to make $9 a month from Patreon. <laughs> and our offer still stands. Our first patron on Patreon, we're going to bring you on the show. So uh, check us out, Classic Guitar Rock, on Patreon. When we come back, we're going to dig into one of the greatest rock albums of all time, 2112 from Rush.
Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy, and we are going to talk about 2112. Perhaps my favorite album of all time. And I say perhaps because on any given day, I mean, I, I, I could flat out tell you 2112 is my favorite album, right? But on another day, I might tell you Blizzard of Oz is my favorite album. So I got to leave myself some wiggle room. But let's just say one of the, the biggest, most important albums, not only to Rush, but to me. So a, a great album. Everyone, everyone should own this album. It's just a great album. So before we get into it, I want to just give you a, a little of my personal history with this album. It's about, uh, let's see, it's got to be about 1981. I, at the time, live in the boonies of beautiful western Montana. And I, on a Saturday, early, this it was, it was early spring. There was still a little bit of snow in places, probably April. And I go to a friend of mine, uh, a classmate, and we weren't great friends. He just invited me to come over. Not that, you know, we just were, we were in different grades, uh, went to a, a real small school. So we actually were in the same classroom. They had combined sixth, seventh and eighth grade. I was in eighth grade. He was in seventh grade. And so we just didn't really work together that much during school. But of course I knew him. You knew everyone in a tiny school, but he invited me over. Hey, why don't you come over and we'll shoot BB guns or whatever. So I go over. We shoot BB guns. If I remember right, he had a RC car that we were playing with. And then we go into his house. He says, hey, check this out. And in very reverent tones, we're talking very quietly as we walk up the stairs and we go into his older brother's room. His older brother was gone. And Mark very carefully and, and reverently pulls out this album. And it still looks brand new. And his brother had this killer stereo system. And he says, you got to hear this. And I'm looking at this album cover, the, the 2112 album cover. And I look on the, on the back and I see these guys that look like girls. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know about this. He opens it up. And, and of course the inside of the gatefold of that album has kind of the circuit board theme going on. And, and I see the lyrics printed out. I'm like, Whoa, this is heavy. And he puts it on the turntable really loud. And from that very opening note, you know, the keyboard part at the beginning, man, I was hooked. It just pulled me in. And uh, then I, I hear this, this overture at the beginning, this music and guitar playing. And it was, I was like, what is this? I'd never heard anything like it. And then the singing starts. And the meek shall inherit the earth. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? And we listened to that entire side. Didn't say a word, just sat there listening to it. And when it was over, I was like, wow. And I knew I had to have that album. And that very next week, uh, my mom went into town and I went to a record store. I had some allowance money and I was going to find... 2112. Now keep in mind, this is 1981. The first time I heard it. Okay. The album was already five years old at that time and I couldn't find it, but they did have all the worlds a stage. And I noticed on all the worlds a stage that 2112 was on it. I didn't realize at that point on that album, they didn't play 2112 in its entirety. They left out like two of the, two of the parts, but I didn't care. 
you know. So I settled for that. And in the meantime, listening to this entire All the World's a Stage on cassette, it introduced me to a lot of their other stuff, which I really liked as well. Uh, and then a few months later, when I went back to the record store, they did have 2112. So I eventually did get it. But 2112 was the album that introduced me to Rush. And it got me to buy my first Rush album, which was All the World's a Stage. Then eventually 2112 then moving pictures. And then I started, you know, going backwards, buying everything until I eventually owned, I own every Rush album up through Presto. And it's just between you and me. I love Rush, right? But they kind of lost me after Presto. Not that the stuff after isn't any good. I just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't grabbing me like, like the earlier stuff was. That's a, that's a topic for another episode, I guess. But this album, more than any album I can think of, really had an impact on me. And for those of you not familiar with the background, let's let's just talk about this a little bit. Let's go back to 1975. Rush's album, Caress of Steel, was, by all accounts, a, a disappointment. Not that the band didn't like it. The band really dug it. Some fans really dig it. In fact, I know some people that Caress of Steel is their favorite album. It did not do well commercially. It didn't sell any units. There was really not much that you could play on the radio. I think some album rock stations at the time might have played Lakeside Park. There there just wasn't much there that radio could play, and radio didn't play it. And they started to refer to that tour as the down the tubes tour. They're touring all over the U S and Canada and their attendance at shows is, is going down. You know, it was a less successful tour than fly by night and it just was not going well. And there was pressure on them from the record company from Mercury. In fact, Mercury was threatening to drop rush altogether and there was pressure on them to, guys, we need some radio songs. We need some singles. This is not working, right? And their manager, Ray Daniels, he flies out to talk to the big wigs at Mercury. And he, he assures them, oh, the band's working on some great stuff. You'll love it. We'll get, it'll, it'll be radio friendly. You'll love it. And he, he hadn't even heard anything they were working on. In fact, what's funny is the band were intentionally not letting Ray Daniels hear what they were doing. Ray Daniels did not hear 2112 until it was done. Okay. So I, I want you to think about this. Here's the record company saying, we need you to put out some singles. We need some three minute and 30 second radio songs. Okay. Well, that's exactly not what <laughs> 2112 is. In fact, Rush doubled down. Okay, they doubled down and and they as a band made the decision this is who we are. You know, we like to write this progressive stuff. We like to write these long songs. And and if it means that this is the end of the band, so be it. But we're going out on our sword, right? I can only imagine what Ray Daniels thought when he heard <laughs> 2112. I mean, the lead song is a is a 20-minute opus that covers all of side one. He probably pooped his pants. I can only imagine. But what's interesting 
course, we all know this was Rush's most successful album up to that point. It outsold, it charted in Canada. I think it got up to like number five in Canada and it got up into the 50s or 60s in the U.S. when it was released. I don't have the exact number, but but it was it was the most successful album they had done to that point by far. And in fact, to this day, it's their second highest selling album after moving pictures. So think about that. Bigger than Permanent Waves, bigger than Farewell to Kings, uh, bigger than Hemispheres, bigger than Signals. Okay, 2112 is their second all-time album in terms of sales. So a huge album, a huge gamble by the band, and it paid off. And Alex Lifeson said, he, quote, this was the first album that sounded like Rush. So this is where they were starting to get their identity. And and this album, for me, think of this run of albums. 2112, Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures. Can you think of a stronger run of albums by any band? I can't. I mean, I think that's possibly, is that five albums? That's the best run of five I can think of from any band. All five of those albums are stellar. And uh, it all started with, with 2112. And the band will tell you that after 2112, the label left them alone. The label basically let them do what they wanted to do. So it was a very important album, a big gamble that paid off. Now, some interesting things about this album. Uh, we always think about 2112, you know, the opus on side one, which is phenomenal. But side two, the five songs on side two are really good. You got Passage to Bangkok. You've got Something for Nothing. You've got Tears, Twilight Zone, Lessons. I think that's all the songs on side two. That side by itself is a great side. It's kind of eclipsed by side one, but it's a great album all the way around. The opus 2112 is based very much on the writings of Ayn Rand. Now, those of you that aren't familiar with Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand is a Russian-born uh, Jewish lady, female. A lot of people don't know that Ayn Rand is, is a woman. Ayn Rand started a philosophy she called objectivism, which is very much a kind of libertarian focus on the individual individual rights and that sort of thing. And she had a big influence not only on Neil, but on Alex and Getty as well. So in the mid-70s, they were reading Ayn Rand. They were reading Anthem. They were reading The Fountainhead. They were reading Atlas Shrugged. By the way, I've read all of these books, and I think they're great. Okay, This is not a podcast about politics, but this album kind of caused some trouble for the band because Ayn Rand was considered kind of a controversial figure. And to be honest, I think the band was kind of surprised by that. In fact, there was uh, an idiot, and I'll call him an idiot because he doesn't understand Ayn Rand. A guy in the British paper NME, a guy named Barry Miles, made allusions, I'm quoting this, made allusions of the Rand influence to Nazism. Okay, everything Ayn Rand talks about is exactly the opposite of Nazism. Exactly the opposite of socialism, of communism. It's all about 
libertarianism. It's about the individual. So I don't know what this guy was smoking when he wrote this, but this really offended Getty Lee. Those of you that know Getty's history, his mom was a Holocaust survivor. You think he's going to associate himself with something that is uh, sympathetic to Nazism? It's ridiculous. I don't know where this guy got this idea that, that Ayn Rand was influential to Nazism because it's not. Her writings are not. All you got to do is read an Ayn Rand novel, and that's not the case at all. But this was some of the controversy that the band got because Neil credits the genius of Ayn Rand right in the liner notes. And the reason he does that is the story of 2112 is very heavily... I'll say borrowed from Ayn Rand's work, Anthem. Anthem is a short little novel. You can read it in like an hour and a half. It's, it's, it's a good book. So in 2112, it's about a guy that finds a guitar. In Anthem, it's about a guy that finds a light bulb. Okay, but, but the stories are very similar other than one's talking about a guitar, one's talking about a light bulb, everything else pretty much the same. Okay. And so Neil gave Ayn Rand credit just to make sure that, hey, we don't want to get sued that they they say we're stealing from Ayn Rand because he was he was freely borrowing the idea from Ayn Rand. Earlier, they had had a song called Anthem, if you remember, back on uh, Fly By Night. Or is that on Caress of Steel? Wherever they had that earlier song Anthem. So, again, they were influenced by by Ayn Rand and later. They, I don't want to say they've disavowed it. They haven't disavowed it. But Neil Pert has said, well, you know, that was 40 years ago when I wrote that. And yeah, I was into Ayn Rand. And he never said he disagreed with it. He just said he wasn't really so much into Ayn, Ayn Rand again. You know, he was an idealistic young guy in his 20s when he wrote that. And things had changed. But at that time, uh, Ayn Rand was pretty influential to the band. But let's talk about the song itself, 2112. You know, it starts with what we call the overture. And the overture was actually the last part written. And that's just the the instrumental opening. Uh, and it starts with that ARP Odyssey keyboard at the beginning, which I love. The space sound. And then it comes in four minutes, 31 seconds. The overture ends with the meek shall inherit the earth part which is obviously quoted from the bible and then the explosion and then you go right into temples of syrinx okay and this is quintessential getty lee quintessential rush uh the temple of syrinx part the discovery this is perhaps to me the most interesting part of this song i mean it's this is the the acting part, the drama part, right? Where Alex basically just with his guitar and you got the sound effect of the water in the background. He's in a cave. The guy, the character has found this strange device, right? It's got wires that vibrate and give music, you know, and he's doing this. I, I just always love that part where I'm envisioning a guy literally finding this thing he's never seen and he's starting to play it. 
And of course, I always laughed at, <laughs> it takes this guy two minutes till he's an accomplished guitar player, right? Because he starts, he starts out tuning the guitar and playing some harmonics, and then he's playing little melodies, and then all of a sudden he's playing chords, and it's just kind of funny. But that was always one of my favorite parts of the song, is the discovery part. And this was often the part that would be left off live, because as you could imagine, this would be kind of hard to recreate live. But then you got the presentation, which is great. Don't annoy us further. You know, that whole part is great. The presentation, you go into the oracle and the dream part, uh, the soliloquy there towards the end. Uh, and then we've got the grand finale. Now, what I've heard is that that is Neil Peart's voice at the end saying, we have assumed control. We have assumed control. We have assumed control. And that that wraps it up. It's 20 minutes, 20 minutes and 34 seconds of perfection. Nerd heaven when you listen to 2112. Anyone that hasn't listened, go out, right? Stop this podcast right now and go listen to it because <laughs> it's it's that good. It's a great album. Then we've got uh, side two, often overlooked, but there's some great songs on side two. Passage to Bangkok. Yeah, this is the pot song, okay? But it's a, it's a great song and still one that they play live or, well, they don't play live anymore, but played live through much of their career. And then Twilight Zone, which is just a cool song, just kind of trippy, jazzy. The lyrics are cool. Just a great song. Lessons. Okay, now, now here's something interesting. Lessons is the lyrics are written by Alex Lifeson. Okay, and the music is attributed to Lifeson. And then the next song is called Tears, a, a kind of a slow ballad, a beautiful song. That's written, the lyrics are written by Getty Lee, and the music is written by Getty Lee. So those are the only two songs where Neil Peart is not credited with the lyrics. And then lastly, we've got Something for Nothing, which is a excellent song, a great song. I've always loved that song. Lyrics by Peart, music by Lee. So Lifeson doesn't get credit on the music of Something for Nothing, nor does he get credit on the music for Tears. Okay, so there's the two songs that Peart didn't write the lyrics to. And then, like I said, Lessons, Alex gets credit for both the lyrics and the music. And I only point that out because... With very few exceptions, what you'll see on, on the albums from when Neil joined, right? 90% of the time, it's all lyrics by Neil Peart, all music by Lee and Lifeson. So we got a, a few of these exceptions here on this album as well. And that was kind of their MO for their entire career. It was they'd get together. Getty and Alex would always be working on music. Neil would shut himself in a room or go outside or go on a motorcycle ride or whatever and write lyrics. And then they'd come together and, and that's kind of how the process worked. And then Neil has said that oftentimes Getty would have input about the lyrics simply because Getty's the one that had to sing them, right? He, he might make suggestions. Can we change this to this? Or can we repeat this line here or whatever? So Getty did have, some input into the lyrics, but primarily Neil Peart was the 
lyricist for Rush. And what a lyricist he was, man. What a smart guy. Huge loss when we lost him. And what a contribution he has made. But this album, if if someone is not a Rush fan, I think this is the album you start with. Okay, I think this is this is the gateway album. And then you can go forwards or backwards after this. But I think and and maybe I'm biased because this is the way I started, right? But I just think it's a great album to start with. It's got different levels and layers of intensity. You got the probably the hardest stuff they've ever done on this album, you know, Temples of Syrinx, the presentation, overture, right? And then some of the mellowest stuff like Tears. Right. So this is a great album in terms of of dynamics and a very powerful statement from the band. And and they basically said to the record company, (laughs) we're not going to listen to you. We're going to do it our way. And that's what I love about this album. That's what I love about Rush. Rush has never been a band that has followed trends. I mean, they've been influenced by other things. You can hear that. You can hear it on permanent waves. You can hear it on signals. You can hear it that that they were listening to other influences. Uh, I can remember one of the critiques in the early 80s was Rush sounds like the police. Well, Rush was influenced by the police. They were influenced by reggae and ska and some of this other stuff that was happening. But they've never been a band to follow trends and rush fans are different i can remember in high school that the kids that liked rush weren't necessarily the same kids that liked iron maiden or judas priest the rush kids were always a little nerdier and i don't mean that in a bad way because i was one of those kids rush fans were into books right they were into reading they were into you know, science fiction and fantasy and those sorts of things. And I think a lot of kids identified with Rush and Neil Peart's lyrics. Clearly some overlap between Rush and and other hard rock, but uh, Rush had a unique fan base. They've even joked about it, right? You know, you'd go to a Rush concert and you wouldn't see a girl anywhere in the the stadium, but they they definitely had a, a very loyal, loyal following. And to this day, one of my favorite bands love to go back and listen to the albums. And they're a band that I like to listen front to back, listen to, you know, there's other, other bands I can go uh, to Judas priest and I, I want to hear this tune and I listen to it. I cannot do 2112 unless I hear all of 2112. I got to do that whole side at least. And then I usually just, well, listen to the rest of it. That's the way I am with rush. I want to hear the whole album from, uh, from front to back. And this is a great album to start with. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Send us an email, classicguitarrock at mail.com. We're available on all the major platforms. We are on Patreon. We're still looking uh, for our our first patron so that we can bring you on the show. (laughs) But thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. <laughs>